Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Steve Hirschfeld. Today is a special day. It's Tuesday, and on Employment Matters podcast, that makes it Travel Tuesday, where each week we get the chance to dial in a member from around the world who can share us what it's like to do business in their jurisdiction. Today, we're going to be learning about doing business in the Empire State, the great state of New York. And I don't have one, I've actually got three lawyers from that state. I want to welcome to our podcast, Lou DiLorenzo from Von Shenikin King in Syracuse, New York, Robert Holtzman from Kramer 11, New York City, and Ginger Schroeder from Schroeder Joseph in Western New York. How's everybody doing today? Great. Great, Steve. Great, Great to be here with you, Steve. Well, folks, let's kick things off by talking about what New York State is like to do business. When most people that are not from the United States think of New York, Robert, they immediately think of the Big Apple, New York City. But that's only one little part of the state. And one of the reasons we've got three of one is that because New York is kind of like having three different countries all in one. So if I can go around the horn, Maybe you folks can each tell me something and our listeners a little bit about what's a unique aspect in your state. Let's go to Western New York first, to Buffalo, where Niagara Falls is located. Ginger, tell us what's business like in Western New York? Well, we used to be a manufacturing sector economy. And for that reason, I think we were kind of known as the heartland for unions. But over the last few decades, we've kind of transitioned to a service economy. So we're very heavy in the healthcare sector. I think one thing that's very nice about Western New York is a very communal spirit to it. So people say it's the largest living room in the world. Everyone's one degree removed from someone else. So people know each other. They are very pleasant to do business with. And I think another thing that kind of recommends our area is that it's very, very inexpensive to live here. So you can get a very nice salary and have a good quality of life. What a lot of people I don't think realize is you guys are so close to Canada. You got Toronto right nearby. How much business is there flowing between the two cities? There's quite a bit. There's a lot of people who live in Canada and work in Buffalo and vice versa, live in in Buffalo or in Ellicottville and travel to work in Canada. So there's quite a bit of significant cross-border travel going on for work-related items. All right, Lou, now we're talking upstate New York, Syracuse, where your firm has got its headquarters. What's it like? How's it different from Western New York? Well, you know, there's a lot of similarities. It's very different from other parts of the state. You know, Steve, history-wise, the Erie Canal went from Albany to the Great Lakes and then connected it to the St. Lawrence River and so on. In the 1850s, that was like the internet, that travel area from Albany, Utica, Syracuse, Rochester, Buffalo. All those cities were heavy in manufacturing, copper wire plants farming, a very, very industrialized area. I think Buffalo around the turn of the century was the third largest city. And Syracuse was a crossroads of the state for that reason. And manufacturing, as Ginger said, I agree with her, was heavy. In Syracuse, a very strong union background of manufacturing and a very blue collar town in the turn of the century and through the 20th century. The city of Rochester was different. It was a white collar town without much of a union history. But Syracuse and Buffalo had a great tradition of union trades, union crafts, and so on. Rochester was, you know, the workforce was heavily Kodak, Xerox, white collar versus blue collar in the other towns. 
So we have a great workforce, unionized and non-union in that area. There's a lot of facilities available for people to move into, great opportunities. There's great higher education, private education, Syracuse University, Cornell, Clarkson, St. Lawrence, Hamilton, Colgate. Those are all around that area of central New York. There's a lot of high-tech activity because of the colleges and universities, incubation-type centers, especially at Cornell and Ithaca. But as Ginger said, it's retooled from manufacturing, healthcare, higher education, and a lot of small businesses, a lot of small businesses in Syracuse and Rochester that were spun off from the Kodak and Xerox days still survive and have done very well and grown. And the activity is very good. Attitude of the people is terrific. It's a great place to practice law. Lawyers are very cooperative. Judges are cooperative. You know, it's a nice place to practice law and a great tradition of collegiality in virtually every aspect of the communities. Now, on the other hand, probably the quietest city in America would be New York City. All kidding aside, it would be the melting pot of America. You have every possible language, demographic. I mean, it's just, it is truly a toss salad. Tell us, what's the economy like right now? And by the way, how's COVID affected New York City? Steve, I thought you were going to accuse New York City of being inexpensive, like Buffalo. But, but that also would be something that nobody has ever accused New York City of being. So New York City is obviously a bit different. The financial services capital of the world. We no longer are driven by manufacturing, and that hasn't been the case for a long time. Very big in banking, consulting, those types of professional services in particular. COVID has been extraordinary for New York City. For the longest time, the city really shut down, particularly in the business districts in Midtown Manhattan and Downtown Manhattan, was really a ghost town. You could walk down Fifth Avenue, walk across the street, and there was no traffic coming down the road. Lots of stores closed up for periods of time, but Midtown is really getting reinvigorated now. Lots of people have started to come back, certainly not in the numbers that were the case pre-pandemic, but more are expected in January. There's a significant push kind of across the board for people to be back in the office on a regular basis starting in January in New York with more voluntary or part-time returns at this point. But many employers are looking at more hybrid arrangements than ever before. So there's some question as to whether Midtown Manhattan will ever be quite as busy as it used to be. Well, you know, it's interesting. First outside the United States would say, well, isn't employment law and labor law the same around the country? And they realize quickly it's not, that every state's a little bit different. But in New York City, on top of it, don't you have different employment laws than the rest of the state? That's exactly right, Steve. You know, they're very, very significant differences between New York City's rules and those across the state. In fact, New York City sometimes being lately accused of being as liberal as California when it comes to some of its employment rules. New York City has become really a leading advocate in progressive statutory developments. Let me mention one which is really critical and really upends the hiring process, which is the New York City Fair Chance Act, which requires that inquiries into an applicant's criminal background be deferred until the applicant has received a conditional offer of employment, meaning you can't wait until after you make an offer of employment to do your entire background check, because the only thing that can be reserved until after that offer of employment is the criminal background check as well. So it 
has created difficulties for employers in New York, frankly, because it lengthens the process, makes it a two-step process. And this is just one example of the way that New York City will roll out its own laws that apply within the five boroughs and affect lots and lots of employers. Hey, Ginger, one of the things that confuses folks out to the United States is rules on non-competes, non-disclosure agreements, non-solicitation of you know, customers. And you know that's all based on every individual state. What's New York's current trend on that? Are non-competes enforceable still in your state? They're definitely disfavored, you know, in New York. And our clients tend to lean more towards non-solicits relative to their customers and clients. And those are more regularly enforced if there's a legitimate business interest for protecting the employer's interests. But we still have, you know, I still get calls from employers wanting to impose non-competes on janitors and you know, low-level employees. And it's an education process to have them understand that the courts really look very askance at those. Hey, Lou, I got to figure, like California, New York's an expensive place to defend a lawsuit. What is the current state of law in New York on things like arbitration agreements? Can private companies, unlike in California, can private companies in New York force its new hires to sign arbitration agreements? And are they a good idea in your state? They are permitted in New York state and enforceable. You know, one size doesn't fit all is my attitude on arbitration agreements, depending on what the risks are that the company's associated with, what kind of experience they've had, what they're likely to get hit with. Are they likely to get hit with class actions? How do we want to handle that? I also look to the possibility, sometimes what works just as well or better is a jury waiver getting someone to sign an agreement that they will waive the right to a jury trial in a discrimination or other lawsuit that may involve their employment or the termination of their employment. Oftentimes, that's really the complaint an employer has, is the concern about a runaway jury and what a jury might do, not understanding the employment at will rules and what the non-discrimination statutes actually mean and stand for. And, you know, the nice thing about, uh, you know, in the old days when I started practicing law, They talked about how arbitration was fast and cheap and easy, and it's not anymore. Oftentimes, it's expensive, three arbitrators, a lot of discovery, no rules, no deadlines. If we're in court, in federal court, and there's been a waiver of the jury, we got a judge, we got deadlines, we got scheduling orders, we have motion practice, there's a set of rules. The judge won't accept any money. I understand it's disfavored if one of the parties tries to offer the judge money as opposed to an arbitrator. So it's a great system. It's cheap. And frankly, in many cases, I find it faster and fairer. So that's another option that can be looked at. But the agreements are enforceable. Robert, in New York City, the big financial services companies, are they still requiring non-competes? And how about arbitration there? So in terms of arbitration, let me start with that. If you're a registered person with FINRA, then you're required to arbitrate claims, although discrimination claims are accepted from that. But most of the financial services firms still have full-blown arbitration agreements, and they arbitrate all claims with their employees. In terms of non-competes, the market's changed a bit on that. So non-competes are still definitely something that firms look at, particularly for more senior employees. But they rely on other methods as well, including garden leaf provisions. It's very common to have 30, 60, 90, and even as much as 120-day notice provisions that require employees to provide prior notice. And they're sometimes put on garden leave during those periods as a cooling off period. They're still employees during that time. They're still paid during that period of time. And they can still be asked to perform duties during that period of time, but they are not able to go work for a new employer. And then also not specific non-solicits. 
as Ginger mentioned before, is a narrower way to put restrictions in place because our courts do find that restrictive covenants are disfavored, even though they are enforced regularly. It's better if you can make it as narrow as possible to really serve the business interest you're trying to protect. Great. Look, before we wrap things up, what I'd like to do is go around the table one more time and just find out what, what's the hottest HR topic your clients are dealing with right now. Ginger, why don't you start? COVID, 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 COVID. And that includes things like whether the mandatory vaccinations. In Western New York, what's the trend there? Religious exemptions, mandatory vaccination, mandatory vaccination by an employer, even when it's not required by statute, COVID leave, COVID testing. We're having a huge spike in COVID cases. You've probably heard in Erie County and Cattaraugus County. So for two years, all we've been doing is living COVID. And I would say at least 50% of my workday is comprised of dealing with questions from my employers on you know, how to deal with a particular aspect that touches COVID. What about you, Lou? I wish I could add something that's different than that, but it's pretty much the same. We represent a number of school districts, larger school districts in the state and a lot of municipalities. So we have the public sector issues that involve COVID and then the private sector issues as well. Really, it's permeating everything, the retaliation claims, the OSHA work. Hey, Robert, you know, New York City, the financial services firms the last few years, particularly pre-COVID, got hit with all these Me Too lawsuits, right? sex discrimination, financial services, sexual harassment. Is that still a hot topic? What's going on with that right now? So obviously in the COVID era with most employees and employers being remote, the landscape has changed a bit. In the days and weeks and months and the first couple of years after Me Too first hit, we saw lots and lots of lawsuits, obviously, investigations and complaints that needed to be addressed. In the COVID era, with lots of employees working remotely, while it's certainly possible for a person to harass or to be harassed through a video, it's less likely to occur and it doesn't occur with the same frequency. So I would say no, since the beginning of the pandemic, things have definitely softened in terms of the number of incidents that we're seeing on the sexual harassment front. Right. Well, I appreciate that. Well, folks, this has been great. Lou, Robert, Ginger. We really appreciate your help today. If you want to find their bios, very easy to do. Just click on their names in the description of this podcast. And you can also visit ela.law to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers, our on-demand content, find lawyers from around the world that can help you, and maybe most importantly, to access the Global Floor Handbook, which is the ELA's exclusive free online guide to hiring and firing around the world. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Steve Hirschfeld. Thanks for listening.